0: good morning good to see everybody just kidding i can't see you at all everybody says see you on sunday when i'm talking to them on the phone and i can't see you at all let's let's start today by opening in prayer let's pray god we thank you for the fact that we can still gather online in our homes thank you for the efforts of the people here in this building that make that possible and god i thank you today for this text that you've put before us it's um interesting text one that 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 I'm saying is a message to the church in a broken world and that's exactly where we live right now so we just pray that you would speak to us today that you would help us to know you to hear your voice and to be able to live in the middle of this world as a witness to you in in our words and in our actions in Jesus name we pray amen a couple of uh, housekeeping details as we begin uh, I've, I've talked about this sermon outline contest uh, where you can send in the blanks filled in. I want to tell you that again this week Glenn Ogren won. He is undefeated, and someone needs to dethrone him because it's going to go to his head fairly quickly. So if somebody else can can compete with him in the coming weeks and, and win, that would probably be good for his humility. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, the second thing I would say is uh, I want you to remember the rules for revelation. As we're going through it, I've asked you to follow three rules. Number one, uh, in the words of, I think it's Elsa from Frozen, if you have a previous understanding of Revelation, let it go for a little while. Let it go. You can pick it up later, but be willing to entertain different ideas. That's the first rule. The second one is to read the text. Read it out loud. Read it often because it's a very visual text. It's important that that it's read and that you hear it. And the third is to tell someone else what you're thinking what you're learning what you're reading what you're seeing Uh, today before we get into our text i want to start by doing a four-minute review of what i call the big picture so far there's a lot to see in the book of revelation but if you can start to get some mental hooks to hang things on the flow of the text it will really help you so we, we start the title remember is the revelation of jesus christ it's not the revelation Of the end times. It's not the revelation of the prophetic plan of the future. That's not the title. The title is A Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the goal is to help believers when it comes to knowing and seeing Jesus present in the current moment. The first three chapters are about the fact that Jesus is present in the current moment with his people. Uh, John sees this vision of Jesus standing among the seven lampstands, which are these seven churches. The world is falling apart. The people are suffering. They're wondering, who is this King Jesus and what is this kingdom like? And, And so John gets these seven letters written to specific churches with clear details about what they're going through to show that He knows where they are, to speak into their current moment and to call them to overcome by continuing to follow the example of the slain Lamb, by by keeping His deeds to overcome. There are these these letters that come to them. And then after the letters, we see a door open right into the throne room and John sees in chapter 4 and 5 the slain Lamb on the throne. Remember the scroll laying there, the royal decree about the coming of the kingdom of God, and no one could be found to open it, and John weeps. But one of the elders says, don't worry, John, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome, and he is, he is worthy. And John turns to see this lion, and the lion is a slain lamb on the throne. And the lamb then begins to open the scroll, seal by seal it's it's jesus enacting his decree of the coming of the kingdom that's what we see happening and we see in chapter 6 to 8 this unfolding clash of kingdoms how how regime change comes as the kingdom of god comes against the kingdom of the world there's this greek word thlipsis this collision what's translated tribulation the pressure from the collision between the kingdom of god and the kingdom of the world and between seal six and seal seven there's this pause to remind the church that they are protected, they're sealed by the Spirit during those times. It doesn't mean that they avoid suffering, it doesn't mean that they even avoid death, but it means that death itself has no power to take them away from God. That they are protected on both sides of death. We, we sang that today, you know... Um, uh, our, oh, I just lost the words. Your promise sure, our, our, our soul, my soul secure, your promise sure, your love endures always. That's the message to the church between seal six and seal seven. And last week we talked about what happened, that the prayers go up and these judgments come and living through the, the trumpet judgments. What's that like? This horrible devastation, this natural devastation that we see as the world implodes upon itself, this spiritual devastation as people idolize what they want instead of surrendering to the Lamb. It's an actual picture of reality in the world today as people resist God and His coming to them. And once again, there's a pause between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7, which is our text today. And I want you to see that the pauses... Our messages to the church. In chapter 7, it was a reminder that they could stand. <clears throat> they were sealed by the Spirit. They were protected, even if victory didn't look like they thought it would be. They're, they're, they're safe. And in our text today, chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 14, it's the pause between trumpet 6 and trumpet 7. And it's a message to the church in the middle of the warning judgments. Uh, Josiah Teeson, with some help from Rob and Kim is going to read that text for us right now.
1: Another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire, and in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a great shout like the roar of a lion, and when he shouted, The seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying,
0: Keep secret what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down.
1: Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and land raised his right hand towards heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, There will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen, just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again.
0: Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land.
1: So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Then I was given a measuring stick and I was told,
0: Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard for it has been turned over to the nations they will trample the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days
1: these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth if anyone tries to harm them fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. They will complete their testimony. The beast will come out of the bottomless pit and declare war against them, and he will conquer and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt and the city where their Lord was crucified and there for three and a half days all peoples tribes languages and nations will stare at their bodies no one will be allowed to bury them all the people who belong to this world will gloat over them and give presents to each other to celebrate the death of the prophets who had tormented them but after three and a half days God breathed life into them and they stood up terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets.
0: Come up here.
1: And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. At the same time, there is a terrible earthquake that destroyed a 10th of the city. 7,000 people died in the earthquake and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly.
0: Thanks, Josiah, Rob, and Kim. This is a fascinating section of Scripture. I'll be honest, this is the third time in 20 years I've preached on this text, which shows you a little bit what kind of a glutton for punishment I am. But the other two times I've gone home very frustrated because this text is just so full of imagery and illusion from the Old Testament that you can never really even scratch the surface. If you were a believer hearing this text, and you are familiar with the Old Testament. The whole time as it's being read, that the, these light bulbs are popping on of these Old Testament passages and these images, and and chapter ten and eleven, this message to the churches plays out in two distinct scenes. The first is the big, the the mighty angel with the scroll, and the second is is kind of. A, a, a scene of the, the two prophets or the two witnesses. There's kind of two sub-scenes in that. There's the measuring of the temple and then these two witnesses. But but we want to look at what is the message for the church in each of those scenes. In scene one, it's eat or internalize truth and then proclaim it. There's a lot in chapter 10, a ton of images, some symbolic references to other places in scriptures. There's these seven thunders that have a message that seems to be too secret to even write it down, I want us to focus on three things in chapter 10. First, an angel, two messages, and a scroll. You have this mighty angel in verse 1 coming down from heaven. Three times in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, chapter 10, and chapter 18, there's a mighty angel that shows up. This one has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea as if to show that it rules over both. Now, that's symbolically showing that authority, because later on in the book, there's a beast that's going to come up from the sea and a beast that's going to come from the land. So it's important that this angel is standing on both. And there's a lot of similarities in this angel to visions that we've seen of Jesus. Uh, It says he's robed in a cloud. We see Jesus in chapter 1, verse 13, in a robe. Uh, The angel has a rainbow above his head. And there's in chapter 4, verse 4, there's a rainbow circling the throne. The angels, it says his face was like the sun. In one sixteen, it says, with with the Son of Man his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. The angels' legs were like fiery pillars. And one chapter 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And it says this mighty angel gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And remember in chapter 5, verse 5, the lion of the Jew, of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. So there's a lot of similarities to Jesus, but it's not Jesus. It's an angel. It says in verse 6, He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them. We realize it's only an angel, but this angel has two important things. One of them is a message, and the other is a scroll. The first one is the message. In verse 6, he says clearly, There will be no more delay. Remember, six trumpets have sounded, and he says, once the seventh trumpet sounds, it'll be done. There'll be no more delay. Remember what the saints cried out around the throne in chapter 6, verse 10, How long, O Lord? How long? And this angel says, there will be no more delay. Once the trumpet seven sounds, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. There's also another message, not from him, but from the seven thunders, in verse 4, when I heard the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I also heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. Whatever the seven thunders said was just too much. So there's this angel, mighty and powerful, who has this message, it's, it's coming, there'll be no more delay. This message of hope for the church. And there's this other message that's a little too secret even to write down. And then there's this Scroll. John's told to eat it, to internalize it, and to speak it out to the world. And I think what's happening here is the church is being told to do the same thing, to take what's being given to them from God, to internalize it, and to proclaim it. It's interesting about this scroll, though. John calls it in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 10. He calls it a little scroll. The Greek word there is for booklet, small scroll. But the voice in verse 8 calls it the scroll, which is a different Greek word. It's the whole book. And and what is it? What what is this open scroll? Well, the only other open scroll that we've seen in the text is this scroll that we saw that couldn't be opened, that had seven seals, and then one by one it got opened. It's, It's the proclamation of what God is doing. It's His plan for the destiny of the earth. And I think What's happening here, and the reason John calls it a little scroll is because it's too much to take it all in. You've got this message from the thunders that's not even written down. You've got everything that God has poured out, and here's this open scroll, and John takes the little scroll. He can't handle it all, but he takes in what he can, and he eats it. And he goes through what, what the church is called to do, the ex- experiencing a bitter, sweet truth. John is told to eat it, and the scroll tastes sweet in his mouth but turned sour in his stomach. Now, if you're an Old Testament buff, this rings a bell for you. Excuse me, Ezekiel chapter three. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. And so I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. And then he said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You see, here's this image from Ezekiel with a little bit added to it. It's, it's, it's good in your mouth, but it's sour in your stomach. And, and that's the message of the coming of the kingdom. There's this beauty to it, this, this sweetness that we saw in chapter 7, right? That he will spread his tent over his people and never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. At the end of the book, Revelation 21 5, the one seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. That's a sweet message for us living in a broken world. All things will be made new. But the reality around us is that people are refusing to surrender to God, to to the Lamb. They they don't want His way. They don't want to surrender to His coming. And that's hard to watch. It's a bitter message. It's it's, it's bittersweet. There's the beauty of the grace of God and the, the, the pain and the suffering of those who refuse to receive it. And John and all the church, I think, are being called in chapter 10 to internalize this truth, sweet as it is in our mouth, sour as it is in our stomach, and then to begin to proclaim it to the world, this bittersweet message. And and that's why in scene number two, the message is there is nothing to fear. I said scene two has these two sub-scenes, part one or part A and part B. There's John being told to measure the temple and then there's these two prophets or two witnesses. And remember that this pause in between six and seven is a message to a church who is suffering and they've been called to, to internalize the truth and to proclaim it. But, but the reality is being a witness to the truth means you die. And I think that's what's coming here. That's what this scene is all about. There's nothing to be afraid of even when you witness to the truth. The first scene 2, part A, the measuring of the temple. John's told to take a measuring rod and go and measure the temple. Once again, this is an echo from from, uh, Zechariah. And we we talked about this several, a couple months ago. Zechariah 2, 1 to 5. Then I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? And he answered, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. And the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. See, in in 11, 1 and 2, we see measuring the temple. And I put those two things in quotes, measuring and temple. The point of measuring Jerusalem in the book of Zechariah was to know that God was going to protect his people, that he was a wall of fire around them. And and as John goes to measure the temple, there's some common interpretations that people have had. Number one, some people say he was going to measure the temple in Jerusalem. The reality is, uh, we think this book was written after the fall of Jerusalem. There was no physical temple for him to go measure. Okay, so some people say, well, this is the temple that's going to be rebuilt. Uh, Two things about that is, number one, where are the measurements for this temple? He was told to measure the temple and then he never reports back. It never happens. And if you read to the end of the book, Revelation 21 and 22, it says, there is no temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And I I know many of you think, and I was taught too growing up, that, that a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem Maybe it will, okay? I'm just asking you to, 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 to realize this particular passage doesn't specifically say that. I think this part about measuring the temple is for the church in the world. Those who are Christ followers in the middle of the world of, of warning trumpets, we're safe, we're protected. And the pause in chapter 7 and the seal of the Spirit was to say, you guys are okay, you're going to be okay in the middle of all this. And that's why I think we never see any measurements, because it's not talking about a physical temple, it's talking about the people of God. That's why the next phrase is, and count the worshipers there. It's a common theme in the New Testament that the people of God are the temple. In 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, as you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the point here is that the people, the worshipers, the temple itself will be protected. God is measuring it so that he knows who all's in it, so that he can keep them safe. Okay, then why the outer court thing and the Gentiles are going to trample on the holy city for 42 months? That's a really good question. I'd like to skip it. Just kidding. Uh, I want to look at the number 42. Now, I've put some references in the outline. I'm going ref- to refer to them, but I'm not going to read them. There's a lot to cover there. But what I want you to see is that number 42 months or 1,260 days or three and a half which is the same kind of reference, or time, times, and half a time. I think all those numbers in Revelation are symbolic of something. 42 for the Jewish people is the number of journey or the number of process. It's, it's usually when it's used, it's, it's God does something um, very notable, and then there's this long process, this long journey, and then he ends it with another act. Let me give you an example. Numbers chapter 33 tells the whole story of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and coming to the Promised Land. And it does it scene by scene by scene. And, it, and, and what's interesting is if you go through Numbers 33 and you count how many scenes are there, there's 42 different scenes. It's, it's a symbol of the whole journey where God starts and ends something. In James 5.17, it talks about Elijah praying against Ahab and the, the number of months that it did not rain, 42 months Something that God started, something that God ended, and the process in between. In Matthew 1.17, the genealogy of Jesus, there were 14 generations in all from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. What's 14 plus 14 plus 14? 42. Once again, there's this process, this journey. 42 months 1,260 days, three and a half days, that whole section, all those things are about the fact that God's starting something and God's ending something. I think that, that these numbers are being used to tell the church this is a journey that you're on. For this 42 months, the Gentiles will trample on the holy city. It's going to look like you're going to be overcome, but God has marked out His temple, His people. And the priests are safe. You're, you're safe as the temple of God during all this. And as we move from this measuring, counting the worshipers there, uh, we move into the story of two powerful and sacrificial prophets or witnesses. Now, now, now we have to think about the number two here, because two is a symbolic number as well. I've given you a bunch of references there in Deuteronomy 19:15, Matthew 18, 16, John 8, 17, and 1 Timothy 5:19. They all refer to the Jewish practice of confirming something with two. Witnesses. If you believe something to be true, confirm it with a second witness. In the presence of two witnesses, all things will be established. That's that's the way the Jewish mentality would think about confirming something. You need at least two witnesses. That's why Jesus, I think, in Mark 6, 7, one of the reasons I think he sent out the disciples, two by two, because two is a number of witness. Now the big question here. Is is this passage telling us about two literal witnesses that will come, or is it using the number two to talk about the church as a witness during the time between the trumpet judgments? And in recent literature, like the Left Behind series and other things, the idea has been taught that in the last days, at the end of time, two witnesses, manifestations of Moses and Elijah, will show up in Jerusalem and they'll prophesy for three and a half years. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a fascinating idea, but I don't think that's what the text is necessarily saying, or I don't think you can jump there with confidence. Because I think the passage is, is not telling the church of that day what will happen in the distant future. I think it's telling the church today what they need to be doing in the present moment. They need to be witnesses. I think those numbers are symbols and that two here is symbolic of witnesses. It talks about two witnesses. It talks about two olive trees. It talks about two lampstands. Now, we've also covered that passage around Christmas from Zechariah of the two olive trees. Zechariah chapter four, you can look it up. There's these two anointed olive trees, these, these leaders in Israel. Most people think they were Zerubbabel and, and the high priest Joshua. And it said that they were given something. These olive trees were given, you may have heard this, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. They were to lead by the Spirit of God, these two olive trees. And now there's two lampstands. Remember, what are the lampstands in Revelation? They're the churches, right? And if you read through the seven churches, uh, five of them have something that that Jesus corrects. There's only two that have no correction. Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8 and Philadelphia, in chapter three, verse seven, "These two faithful lampstands, faithful witnesses. I think this image of two witnesses, two olive trees and two lampstands, represents the church, in this moment, between the, 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 the trumpet judgments, under the pressure of the Word, full of the world, full of the olive oil of the Spirit of God, and burning brightly with the fire of God for all to see. And here's here's the twist to it. It says they have power. They have fire that comes from their mouths because they speak the truth. They have the character of Elijah. They can can stop the rain. They have that kind of power. And Moses, who turned the Nile into blood, they have this power. And it says no one can harm them in verse 5. But then in verse 7 it says the beast will overpower them and kill them. No one can harm them and yet they die. Isn't that interesting? It seems like a contradiction. If no one can harm them, how can the beast overpower them and they be killed? And after they're killed, they lay for three and a half days. Once again, that period of journey in the great city. They're hated, they're mocked, they refuse burial. And then at the end of that third three and a half days, it says God breathes life into them and they are brought up to heaven. See, even death cannot defeat them. The beast can kill them, and yet he can't harm them. And God raises them up. That's the message to the church. There is nothing to be afraid of in these warning judgments. As you stand and as you testify, as you internalize the word, as you speak it out, even if they kill you, they cannot harm you. And God raises him up, there's this huge earthquake and there's something very different that happens. See, the message that goes deeper than words, deeper than actions, even to death, in this we see what finally makes a difference. And I hit on this last week, you remember at the end of the sixth trumpet, all these things are happening, it's terrible. And still it says in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, "...the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality." Or their theft. None of the judgments seem to make a difference, but the witnesses speak the truth even to the point of death. And in verse 13 of chapter 11, it says, At that very hour, there's a severe earthquake, a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven and gave glory to the God of heaven. Don't miss that. The pain of the judgments does not change them, but the proclamation of the prophets who were faithful until the point of even dying does. See, the message to the church here Is that God has measured. He knows exactly who you are, and you are safe. And your call is to speak this bittersweet truth to power, to witness to it even to the point of death, and God will protect you, and even through your death, will transform those who listen. That brings us to the revelation for here and now. If this pause was written to the church in their current moment, what does this section of the text say to ours? Well, it says a lot. I mean, even at the beginning of the book, Revelation 1-3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Blessed are the people who read this and take it to heart. I want to close with four messages for us, four callings as we live in this time of warning judgments. First, we have to seek to internalize the truth, to eat the scroll, to take in the message of God to your very Self. We've been working about this on this spiritual formation retreat on, on the scripture that we're going to do this coming weekend. Love to have you join in on that. And one of the readings is a, a an opening of a book by Eugene Peterson called Eat This Book. And he talks about reading the scripture while he watched his dog at his, at his house in Montana. The dog had gone out into the bush and found uh, a big bone of some animal that had been killed, a deer or something that had been killed. And he pulled the bone back in and he sat on the porch and the dog is just, Argh! you know how dogs will gnaw on a bone and they make these, these sounds of joy and they just savor it. And he's reading in the scripture and Eugene Peterson's one of those smart guys who actually reads the literal Hebrew I remember being in chapel at Regent and he was sitting there with his Hebrew text open for an Old Testament guy preaching and I thought, wow, it's beyond me. But anyway, Isaiah 31, 4, he says, as a young lion growls over his prey, the Hebrew word is haga. as a young lion, and he says, that made me think of my dog chewing on that bone as a young lion, haga over his prey, how he enjoys it, how he savors it. And then he said in Psalm 1, 2, he came across that same word, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates, he haga day and night. He savors it, he chews it, and what the image there is that we are to take in and savor the word of God, to actually bring it into ourselves. Now that's not something that happens quickly. That's why we do these rituals of worship, that's why we read, that's what we're going to talk about this weekend, how do you relate to scripture as a person, how do you engage with it so that you can take it into your very self. Because you don't change because you know something. We, we've got to realize that. How many of you have known the right thing to do and don't do it? That's not how we change. We change because something different is inside. We externalize what we have internalized, whether we like it or not. When we behave a certain way, it's because we've internalized a truth. And it comes out. And what, what the call is for us to seek to internalize the truth of Scripture This is the calling of the disciples to become a different person over time by taking it in. And as we internalize the truth, we realize that we're called to be a temple. But I want to say we need to be a temple with an open door. We're a temple in the world. We're the presence of God. Scripture is really clear about that. In Ephesians 2, it says, You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him too you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We are the temple of God in the world, but I fear that far too often our doors are shut to everyone else. We feel more like the bouncer at the door of the temple trying to only let the right people in. And what we've got to realize, Jesus is the door. You know, it, it's, it's not, you don't grow in your faith by keeping the people who don't know Jesus away from him. You grow by being a part of that temple and being in his presence. Far too often, we even shut the door on ourselves. <laughs> we feel like we've, we've got to do the right things to get into the temple. It's by grace we've been brought in to be a part of the temple. And we need to live with open doors, You know, at the moment of the crucifixion, the curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn in two. The doorway was open. And as we live as temples in the world, we need to have doors that are open to people. It's not our pre-qualifying people that gets them to be like Jesus. It's our opening the door that lets them come in. It's, It's a relationship with him. And what a further kind of clarification of that. I want us to be a witness as a noun, not a verb. I grew up in a church that taught me to witness as a verb. Witness was an action that I did. And I love that church. I'm so thankful for it, everything that I learned there. But subtly over time, I began to, to think of witnessing only as a verb, as something that I went out there and I did. And the scripture says in, in Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Sumerian and to the ends of the earth. Not, it doesn't say, and you will witness for me, but you will be my witnesses. It's witness as a noun. It's, it's a character of who you are. And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm just going to live my life and people will see the gospel. I, I'm saying when you are a witness as a noun, you can't help but speak. The, the, the best example <laughs> in my life is, is basketball. I am a witness for basketball. I don't have to think, I don't have to remind myself to tell people how much, how, how much I like basketball because I love it. I've inter- it's, it's a beautiful game for me, as stupid and silly as that is. I love the game. And so naturally, I just talk about it. I am a witness to basketball because I've internalized it. I love it. And we as witnesses, instead of making witness a verb, something we have to go out there and do We need to become witnesses as a noun, to internalize that truth, to come into the temple ourselves, to let the grace of God engage us. And see, to do that, one of the things we have to do is rethink our definition of power. We we think that coming to God is is about doing all the right things, about being victorious, about winning the, the, the spiritual race about overcoming, and and it is about overcoming, and yet it's not our overcoming or our victory or our success or our spiritual power that brings us to God. These pauses are being spoken to a church who is suffering. They're wondering, is Jesus really on the throne? They're watching the suffering around them, and they're questioning if God was really in power so glad Mark read that passage from Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, the way God views power is in surrender and death. When God comes to show his power, he offers himself as a sacrifice. And far too often what we think is we've got to be good enough. We've got to do enough. We've got to force others to do enough. We've got to win. We've got to overcome. We've got to be the visible winners in the eyes of the world. We've got to have power. And that that power will sell people. And yet what we see in the text and what we see in the life of Jesus is that by surrender and sacrifice, even to the point of death, power is... Comes out of that. That's when the people actually gave glory to God as they saw the witnesses die and God show up. You know, standing at the, at the cross, there's this moment after Jesus bows his head and gives up the ghost. He says, It's finished. The Roman centurion is standing there, the guy who epitomizes everything about Roman power, the guy who's, who's the elite fighting. the leader, the the guy who who took care of this company of a hundred soldiers, he's standing there, probably the guy in charge of the whole crucifixion, the guy who's inflicted all this, and the minute Jesus dies, he says, truly, that man was the son of God. He saw it in his death. It's a hard teaching. But it's one we need to see clearly portrayed in Scripture. We are called, as these warning judgments sound all around us, as the world implodes, as people struggle, we're called to give our lives to witnessing to the truth and the way of Jesus, to being a temple with an open door. And in our weakness, in our failure, in our brokenness, even in our death, He will be seen. And people will come to know Him. People will give glory to God. And what greater calling is there than that? Let's pray. God, we we want to be successful. We want to have it all together. Because we can't even understand how in our brokenness and our death and our failure that you could make yourself known. It it just seems too far beyond our understanding. And yet, God, we we want to surrender to you. We want to follow you. We see this example of you who, who constantly laid aside your equality with God. You, you who became a servant, who suffered and died, even death on a cross, as our example. We see these witnesses who, who proclaim this bittersweet truth to the world around them, who kept speaking of who you are and of the coming of your kingdom and, and, and of your nature and, and what you're all about and how the world destroyed them, how the beast slays them. And, and even in that, they're mocked. And yet, God, you're not mocked. Even in our brokenness and weakness and failure, you breathe life into us. And you say, come up here, because nothing can ever separate us from your love. God, I pray that we as a people could give our lives for you here, that during this time of pandemic, when there's fear, when there's doubt, that we could lay down our lives for those around us, that we could live with confidence that nothing, not even death, can separate us from you. God, as as we face several, face these diagnoses and these illnesses that are life-threatening, I pray that they would find peace in the fact that they are marked by the seal of your spirit and that live or die, you are their God and they are yours. And I I pray that that truth would, would come to all of us and that we could live as open doors to a temple, inviting people to know a God who takes brokenness and makes it whole, a God who takes failure and restores it. A God who takes weakness and makes it strong in his way, in his time. Help us to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. My hope for you this week is that you can eat the scroll. You can take yourself right to the throne of Jesus and realize that his grace is big enough for you. Despite your failures, despite your brokenness, just let it wash over you. Let it be sweet in your mouth. And even as we live in a broken world where that grace doesn't seem to really make sense, that's the message we're called to proclaim, that God loves you. We, we are the children of light, and we're going out there, and we're offering to the world a God who loves them despite their brokenness. And sometimes people are not going to receive that. Sometimes the world is going to rebel against that. But, but that's, that's what we offer, and, and we can trust that despite The struggle and the difficulty that we face despite even losing our lives or our status or our pride, our ego with that message that God will bring life out of our brokenness and out of our failure. My soul secure, your promise sure, your love endures always. That's my hope and prayer for you this week. Amen.